Here we go. You're listening to Friday's Law and Gospel, normally an open mic Friday, uh, this being September the 18th in the year of our Lord 2020. I'm Pastor Tom Baker. And because we're still not in the studio, we respond to emails, letters, phone calls, etc. We had had a series of what is called worship nightmares. In other words, nightmares not for the person who is hearing it, but a nightmare to God himself. Now, what were these nightmares about? Well, they were about false teaching, a bad liturgy, horrible hymns, not understanding the Lord's Supper. We received a number of emails about it, etc. This one was most interesting. It begins, In baptism, God places his name upon the person, and God promises to go with a baptized and watch over. So, here's what he tells us. This actually happened to him. In 1984, while I was a camp counselor, and he indicates the area, 13 sixth-grade aged boys were in my cabin one week. Parents would fill out information sheets so we might have basic information on the campers. All were baptized, but one in the group. Now, one night during that week, I was dreaming. And now here comes the dream. The boys were gathered around me in a house. We put out our thumbs and on them were pentagrams drawn. The boys scattered out of fear. Then there was a voice saying something like, if you have the sign of the cross, you are safe. There was screaming by one of the fleeing boys. At that time, I was awakened by a camper screaming. It was the scream of the unbaptized boy that woke me. Got him settled down. I went to bed. Received the sign of the cross upon the forehead and upon the chest to be a mark as one redeemed by Christ, the crucified. Putting together the words nightmare and baptism reminded me of an experience that I had. There's no doctrinal teaching in it, though God isn't restricted by scriptures. For me, it reinforced the teaching of baptizing infants and the thing God gives to all baptized, remission of sins and the Holy Ghost, spiritual protection. And then the letter ends, blessings with the name, the place he works, and what he does. Now, he always, I I assume, because this letter has it, he always ends with a Bible verse. Uh, This one here specifically is forgiven through righteousness of God. And he has two Bible verses, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Now, I want to read that but I want to start with verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame 
the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Then verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, that's a great Bible verse to have. The people may be reading his letters he sends out and they may want to look that one up. Well, what does it mean? Well, when it talks about that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, what we're discovering is the thing that God talks about in one of the readings for this coming Sunday, that we cannot understand God because the things and the way that he thinks are not the way that we think at all. Uh, for example, and there are so many of them in the Bible, David has to go and fight against Goliath. Now, what's the common sense of that? The common sense is that he would end up putting on a lot of armor. And he tries that. In fact, King Saul gives him his own armor, but it's too heavy for him. And so he takes it all off and goes to meet Goliath with a stone in a kind of a slingshot, and he kills Goliath. That doesn't make any sense. But David had practiced doing that in protecting sheep. And, and Goliath, of course, doesn't believe that David's going to be able to do anything. But one stone puts Goliath to death. When, when Jesus was born, you would think the angels would be sent to the religious leaders of Judaism. Instead, they're sent to two groups of people. One of them are the shepherds. And the shepherds were considered unclean because of their work with sheep and their sacrificing of sheep. They were not permitted to come into the temple proper. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, that a priest and a Levite passes by the man injured, particularly if he was dead, because they would be unclean for a long time if they had touched him. So you've got this situation where God considers things that are unclean to be fine. In fact, Peter has that dream on the upper room. Uh, well, actually, it's a roof. And he sees unclean meat. God says, eat this. And Peter says, I've never eaten unclean food before. But what I have declared clean, do not consider unclean. And it's at that point that Peter is told to go visit a Gentile. And at that time, the Gentiles were considered somewhat to be unclean. 
And so therefore, Peter began to understand what God declares to be pure, what he has cleansed, then we ought not consider them to be unclean. And every person has had their sins paid for. That's the good news of the Christian church that we can share with everybody. Their sins have been cleansed. Now, whoever would have thought that the way that God would do that would be by dying on a cross? Because the Bible even said, is cursed is the one who is hung. Jesus was cursed by God. In fact, he himself says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I was hearing someone who's not a Christian try and explain that. And his point was that once that we feel we're deserted by God, we no longer believe in God. But that's not true in Jesus' case. Because what are the first words? My God, my God. And so Jesus did believe in God the Father and is asking the question, why are you forsaken me? And the reason he's being forsaken is found. And I'm sure this is the Bible verse that Jesus gave to the disciples on the road to Emmaus who were wondering, why was he crucified? Why are we being told he rose from the dead? And that Bible verse out of Isaiah, by his stripes we are healed. Or the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we ought not be surprised that God uses the foolish things of the world in order to make his will known and to fulfill the promises that he gives us so that those who are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What does that mean? Remember, Wednesday we were talking about how Martin Luther was really hating God before he came to understand the phrase righteousness of God. When he read that, he assumed that God is righteous and that he only loves us and saves us when we are righteous like God. He was mistaken. The righteousness of God is that righteousness Jesus Christ had, who now gives us his righteousness while he takes away our sin. So we receive righteousness. We receive sanctification. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit through which we become, be, begin to do fruit of the Holy Spirit. The difference between fruit of the Holy Spirit and a good work is the fruit of the Holy Spirit is motivated by our love for Jesus Christ. Good works are motivated out of self-interest, which leads us to our next Bible verse that is on the letter. 
Philippians 3, verse 9. We're going to start with verse 8. But indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And then verse 9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So what is Paul talking about? That he counts all things loss. Well, he's talking about that if you want to find a good person of Judaism, Paul was that person. He says, I could have had confidence in the flesh. Because if anyone thinks they have confidence in the flesh, that is, in his own life, I have more. And he starts to list. He was circumcised the eighth day. He's of the stock of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And concerning the law, a Pharisee. And he was so dedicated to Judaism that he was even persecuting Christians. Now, as he looks back on all these things, he counts them all as rubbish. Why? Because none of them helped him to be saved. In fact, they were actually marks of his unbelief. And therefore, verse 9 is very important. I was found in him. That, that reminds me of the parable of the lost sheep. It was found and carried back on the shoulders of Jesus. I was found in him, not having my own righteousness. And then he explains it, what he's talking about, which is from the law. What's he referring to? Every religion in the world, as far as I can ascertain, believes that we're saved by the righteousness we do in obedience to the law of that particular religion. And that's what the Reformation was all about. We cannot be considered righteous or even doing a good work until we have faith in Jesus Christ. Because with that faith, we trust in the promises of the gospel. And that's what leads us to be saved in the sight of God. Not because we had our own righteousness from obedience to the law. And that was that list of items that Paul had described. But instead, we have the righteousness that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, I believe a lot of people have nightmares 
because they don't understand the distinctions between law and gospel. When they read the Bible, and many pastors even talk this way, that the purpose of the law is to get you to obey the laws of God so that he will be pleased with you and perhaps even save you. But the fact of the matter is, Every human being has the understanding that they are sinners. Now, sometimes that understanding comes from what the devil is telling them. For example, nobody goes through life without suffering. Some kind of suffering occurs all the time. And the reason for that is because we're living in a fallen world. So there's two kinds of foundations of suffering. The first of all is entropy, E-N-T-R-O-P-Y. That refers to the fact that when anything is created or made or constructed, it starts falling apart right away. And that even includes the bodies of human beings. There are many older people and very few of them don't have some kind of illness or some kind of lameness or their eyes aren't working right anymore. That's entropy. And we mentioned this, you can build a beautiful house and it's perfect. But if you don't continue to paint it or put on a roof or check out your water gauges, guess what? It can start falling apart. In fact, when I go to the four congregations I'm serving in Illinois right now as an interim pastor, as they're either calling a pastor or can't get one to preach for them, what I see is I go by a lot of barns and they, 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 they look like they're falling apart. You know, the wood is down, they're not painted, etc. And then every now and then you go by a farm that is an immaculate uh, condition. Well, the previous farms that are falling apart probably cost too much in order that farmers can, first of all, make money off of their harvest, but they may not have enough to fix up their barns. And their barns still work. Maybe protect machinery that's parked inside, etc. But that causes suffering. The other thing that causes suffering is our sin. There never is an occasion when we sin, whether it be a lie or a bad deed, a thought, or a word that will not have a negative consequence upon us. That's the way the world is since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And that's why there are hurricanes, and tornadoes, and flooding, because the world also fell. The Bible says it groans waiting for the full adoption of the sons of God so that it too 
will no longer have all the negative effects that have occurred since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. So that's why it's so important, especially in these days, that when churches preach the word of God, that they do it apart from a nightmare to God. They do it with proper hymns. They do it with proper liturgy. The pastor does a proper sermon, the proper understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper is provided. Yes, we were talking about baptism, and I have another contact from someone who said, well, it may be true that there are some Baptists that don't baptize infants, but other churches do who are part of the Reformed, uh, say like a Presbyterian or a Methodist. Well, I would ask them to take a closer look at the theology behind that baptism. Is it considered a sacrament whereby a child is brought into the kingdom of God? Or is it more considered as a sign and a symbol of perhaps the parents loving God so much they bring their children to be baptized. The fact of the matter is many of these churches believe that you finally come to faith when you invite Christ into your heart, which is really quite impossible to do for an unbeliever because as an unbeliever, you don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. You don't believe in him. Why would anyone listen to you and invite him into their heart? And as we've said many times before, if a person desires Christ in them, that desire is an act of faith, which means Christ is already in them. In fact, yesterday, uh, because of some technical difficulties, we got started a little late. And one of the points we were making is how repentance, the way people interpret it, is considered a nightmare by God. For example, the Roman church at the time of Martin Luther and today still teaches that proper repentance is sorrow out of uh, sorrow for sin out of love for Jesus Christ. Well, that love is not present in an unbeliever. You, you can't have sanctification of love prior to justification by grace through faith. And so when do we give the gospel to someone? We give the gospel when they're getting to the point of really being afraid of God. Maybe even as Luther ex, uh, uh, explained, hating God. He said, I hate God because not only does he give me these commandments that I am unable to obey, but then he talks about his own righteousness and gives me the impression that I need to be 
as righteous as he is. Luther said, I hated God. It's at that point that the Holy Spirit gave him faith to understand the proper meaning of the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is, yes, God's righteousness, but he transfers it over to us. It's the gift of salvation. So maybe it would be a good practice for you to do what this one letter writer did. Choose two of your favorite Bible verses and have them at the bottom of your letter because that's a real good thing to have. And there are so many people who are in need of that message. I'm Tom Baker. You've been listening to Law and Gospel today. On Monday, God willing, we'll be taking a look at one of the readings for the following Sunday. Choose one of them and explain it from a law and gospel point of view. It's a good opportunity to invite your friends to listen. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.